we go, Jeff. I see that hand slowly as you raise that. So I'm going to go out on a limb and give you a job description of what you do. Because if you're a scientist, your primary job is to be a, an observer. You observe how a hypothesis might actually come to being. How the actual world works. And you write down your findings. And, of course, a crowd favorite of a scientific experiment is the classic Mentos in a soda bottle, or, as we say in the South, in Coke, because it doesn't matter what you're using, it's called Coke. And the reason this is a crowd favorite is it elicits an immediate reaction. You put the Mentos in the Coke or Diet Coke or Dr. Pepper, it's all Coke. If you put it in, and then it erupts with bubbles. And as a scientist, we like to watch what happens. We're supposed to record why it happens. And I, I watched a couple videos, and there's actually a lot of contention about what actually happens to cause the bubbles. But what a scientist does is they, they watch for the reaction. How those two elements respond to one another. Well, for the next four weeks of Advent, we're going to walk through the Gospel of Luke and what I want us to do is, like scientists, I want us to watch the reaction of the characters in this narrative. The way that people respond to God's divine love and grace and covenantal faithfulness to his people. For over the next four weeks, we're going to look at three, particular three songs in the Gospel of Luke and Luke, as Paul tells us when he wrote to the church in Colossae, is thought to be a physician, one who heals. But Luke has an artistic side. Luke likes music. For he's the only gospel writer that records these musics. And like all good poetry, he records how a young, insignificant girl, how a priestly prophet and how a regular old Joe churchgoer responds to their Savior with song. And if you know your Bibles, if you're familiar with your Old, Text, Old Testament scriptures, you will hear in these songs the words of scripture rehearsed, woven together in poetry and song, because God has revealed himself to his people. Much like the Mentos reacts as you put it in a Coke, these believers in the promises of God can do nothing other than explode with excitement and joy of the expectation that the Messiah has come. Much like the Psalms of the Old Testament, these songs are far superior than anything you'll find in your Trinity hymnal, far superior than anything you hear on K-Love. For these three songs are recorded in Holy Scripture, which means they were authored by these three individuals, yet they were inspired by the Holy Spirit himself, given to his people to be sung. These are the first Christmas hymns. These songs have been sung and prayed and recited for centuries. They've been whispered in monasteries chanted in cathedrals, recited in the smallest church across the globe, and even set to music by Johann Sebastian Bach. Almost every line in all of these songs 
you will hear and should hear the Old Testament. God's people responding with what they have so wondrously memorized. And these three songs are known by their Latin names. The Magnificat, the Song of Mary, taken from the translation, the Latin translation of the first line, My soul magnifies the Lord. And we will look at the song of Zacharias and the song of Simeon. And then we will look at a fourth song, Glory in Excelsis Deo, the song of the angels. And what I want us to do is I want us to watch how each of these characters properly respond to the great act of redemption that God had through Jesus. As R.C. Sproul points out, Whenever God would perform a particular significant work of deliverance or rescue of redemption, the action of God in behalf of his people, they would always respond by celebrating in song, whether it be the song of Moses or Miriam or Deborah, all the way to the end of the New Testament as we look at the book of Revelation, God's people respond with singing at the great work of salvation. And these hymns reveal to us the significant dimensions of the work of Jesus Christ. And this is what Luke does. He records these songs, these hymns, to remind us what Christmas is all about. And I have one point. I have one long point this morning. Not long, not that long. I have one point. What I want us to see from the Magnificat the message of Christmas, because it's all about Jesus. Before we turn to the scriptures, let us pray. Father, prepare our hearts for the song of joy, for the song of hope and anticipation, for a song that rehearses your divine love and grace for us in Jesus. Remind us this morning of your great love. Remind us of the great deed that you performed by coming to the unlovable and loving us in Christ. Father, I pray for our church. I pray for those who are here. Lord, keep us from the evil one. Lord, strengthen our marriages. Keep safe our children. May we flee from our sin and run to the cross. We pray for those who are sick. For those who are hurting. those who are marred with physical ailments, but also spiritual. Lord, bind us together by your spirit. May this physical church, may this visible church be a church knit together in community, harmony, and love because we represent the spirit that lives inside of us. Father, we pray for this community. 
May we be salt and light. Whether it be through the angel tree, maybe, maybe it be through conversations that we have. Lord, may we represent you well. May you use us to bring forth the kingdom of God. Lord, we pray for our country, for our president and our vice president, for our judges, for our representatives, for our senators. Lord, may your will be done. Father, give us guidance. Give us wisdom. Raise up leaders from this congregation to this community to take public office to serve this country, but to do it with the love of Jesus. Father, we pray for Jeff and Katie Saunders. Bless them as they are away from their families yet another Advent season to proclaim the gospel to the people of Japan. And Lord, may we pray as you taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, The message of Christmas. We're coming out of a campaign season, of a voting season, which, I'm, of course, will be followed very closely by the next one. But what candidates are told when they're, on, when they're campaigning for office is to stay on message. No matter what question you're asked, no matter what topic is brought up, they're told, stay on message. Whatever that candidate is campaigning on, whatever differentiates them from the other candidates, they are supposed to stay on message. And my prayer is that as a good Presbyterian minister, that I would stay on message. Very often I try to give certain boundaries or parameters, different lines to be drawn so that we can better understand the great doctrine of Scripture. And one of those lines that I've drawn the closer and the more I read Scripture, the more I think that those lines are a little bit more squigglier than I would like them to be. Because as we read Scripture, we see how God has lavished His love on His people. And these lines that I speak of are the difference between God's grace and God's mercy. You know, very often it's easy for me to describe grace as God's giving to someone something that they don't deserve. And God's mercy is his removal of something that we do deserve. God's grace is something give, giving someone something that they don't deserve, and his mercy is removing something that they do deserve. And however those lines, however squiggly they are, I think this passage gives us a great hope of the grace and the mercy that our God has for us. Because this is what we see immediately when the angel Gabriel comes to Mary. This is what he says to her in verse 28. Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. Now, you might not be able to pick this up immediately, but this, this word for favored one is the Greek word for grace. 
O favored one, O who God has shown grace to you, the Lord favors you. And then the angel says, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. For the Lord has found mercy upon you. Immediately this narrative begins to reveal God is at work. God has sent an angel out of his presence, his messenger, to this servant revealing her great need. For what does Mary deserve? She doesn't deserve to God come to her at all. And yet this angel of the Lord comes to her and says, O favored one, she who doesn't deserve the presence, the presence of the holy God, yet that is exactly what our holy God does with her. He condescends through a message of an angel. And in this narrative, we see this supernatural work through three different agents. We see the angel came. We see in just a few verses, the Holy Spirit came. And then we see through her song, the great act that God has came, God has worked, but the promise that God will also work again for his people. And hear how God lavishes his grace upon Mary in the pronouncement of what he's doing. This is what he says in verse 30 to 33. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will, will be, there will be no end. This is an announcement that should again You should hear all the Old Testament allusions. He will be great is the promise that God gave Abraham in Genesis 12. The most high God is what God was called in Genesis 14. The eternal throne of David and that promise given in 2 Samuel chapter 7. God is announcing to Mary through this messenger that he has not forgotten her that he has not forgotten his people and he is making a promise of what he will do. He is going to use Mary. He has come to Mary, a teenager. Scholars believe that Mary was anywhere from the age of 12 to 15. That puts her in 7th to ninth grade. That puts her in our youth group. Mary is completely irrelevant. In world history, up to this point, she's from a town called Nazareth. Luke actually mentions Nazareth to make sure you know where it is because no one knows where Nazareth is. We find out later that she's very poor. For when they make an offering for the birth of Jesus, what do they buy? They buy two doves which in Leviticus was given so that the poor could make an offering because they couldn't afford a ram or a lamb. Mary is also a woman, meaning that day of age she had very little rights, if any at all. Her testimony would not be held up, would not be used in court. And she's been betrothed to Joseph. 
which is complicated and legal and much more significant than our normal day or our today engagements. But this is who God has come to, to pronounce his gracious favor upon. This is who God comes to. This is who God chooses to decide to bring forth his Messiah to redeem the world. It's through this little girl, Mary. And listen to her response in verse 34. How will this be since I am a virgin? This is the point of every Advent season that I have to look at some of you parents and say it's time to have a talk with some of your children. How could God use Mary, completely obscure, completely irrelevant, and a virgin to give birth to the Savior? And this is where we tie in the gospel. How could God use her through the supernatural work of God himself? For this is what the angel proclaims in verse 35. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who, will, who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible for God. Listen to that. The Holy Spirit will come upon her. A supernatural work of God will happen in her life just as it's happening in Elizabeth's life already. And listen to Mary's response. Behold, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. This is her response to the activity and the work of God bringing forth salvation for his people. She was nothing before God came to her. And yet she acknowledges herself as a servant. This word for servant is the same word that Paul uses throughout his letters that is also translated as bondservant or slave. She chooses to comply with this grace because her fortune is tied up to her master's fortune. And her desire is to respond through faith. Her desire is to be used by Almighty God to bring forth his redemption. He is the one who in, Israel, in Elizabeth's life brought life out of barrenness. And through her, just as in the days of creation, he will bring something out of nothing because he is a God that works supernaturally in his world to bring about his purposes. This is a God of grace. He has chosen her. He has elected her to show her favor when she does not deserve it. This is a unique event in history. Yet we are made partakers of the same story in the same way that Mary becomes partakers when we respond in the same way. I am a servant of the Lord. And this is God's gift to us who have nothing. He gives us Jesus. He gives us the Savior of the world. 
Nobody can sing the way that Mary sung in light of this pronouncement that she's been given. But everybody can sing because we all receive the same gift that she was given. The Savior, the Messiah. And this is what Elizabeth proclaims. Blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken from the Lord. This is the promise that's made to all of us who believe in the promises of God. And yet again, listen to how Mary responds, how she reacts to this great act of divine grace. She sings, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from the thrones and exalted those of humble estates. He has fulfilled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to the fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Side note. Try to read this song every day this week. Try to read this song every day this week. I'll give you a new song next week. What a song of God's divine grace for his people. They had nothing, and he gave them everything. This is... The contrast that we see in verses 51, 52, and 53. Those who were low, he brought up. Those who were proud, he brought down. Those who were humble, he brought up. This is what the Spirit does. It levels the playing field. Because no matter where we are, we're drawn to Jesus, the King. And so we should sing. So we should be joyful above all else. This is what John does in the womb. When Jesus enters in, he leaps for joy. This is what Elizabeth does when she gives this great blessing of Mary who carries the great hope of Israel. And why do they do that? Because God has looked upon them with favor. Because God has been gracious in bringing forth his Messiah. Because God has blessed those who deserve no blessing, and he looked upon them through his divine love. And this precedes what Jesus will preach later. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. This song should remind us of our own story, 
of our own estate in which God found us. God had provided for Mary in her poor estate, in her poverty, in her insignificance. And God is confronting us with his mercy. Because God promises that he will have mercy upon whom he will have mercy. Because there's also, hence, there's also judgment in this song. There are those who won't receive mercy because they're proud. There will be people that don't receive mercy because they are rich. And the Bible doesn't just say rich is bad. But over and over, the Bible proclaims and condemns those who are rich and wealthy because they believe it was only up to their power and what they have done that they have received a blessed life. It is those who reject God and his kingdom, who see that they have no need for Jesus. For those who rely upon their own work to earn their salvation. And God is confronting those, those people who build their own kingdom rather than who come into the kingdom of God through divine grace and mercy. God is doing something in the world that reverses the fortunes of the world, bringing those who the world does not look at. Those who come from a teenage girl from Nazareth, a poor teenage girl from Nazareth. It is those that he will lift up. It is those who are offered a place in his kingdom. And this is where we are being invited in to enjoy this blessed life so that we might become the blessed of God. Notice, outside of the first three lines of this song, God is the subject of the rest of the song. He is the one who is acting. He is the one who is doing. He is Mary's Savior and the Savior of Israel. Israel throughout all the Exodus is identified as slaves or servants. And how does he save his servants? We see this in verse 54. In remembrance of his mercy. And this, as R.C. Sproul says, we see the difference between God and us. Because we forget all of the benefits and the blessings of God's in our lives. Our tendency is that our faith is as strong as our latest blessing. We forget all the blessings that he has promised us in our lives. But yet, what do we say every single Lord's Day? What do we say when we quote King David? Blessed, bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. And this is how we differ from God, is God never forgets. 
He does not know how to forget his people. Once he has made a promise, it is written in stone. It's a forever, you might say, an unconditional promise to always remember his people. He can never forget his covenant promises. And this is what makes Mary sing. God has remembered his mercy. God has remembered the promises that he has made in the past. God is making good on his promises in Jesus. In Mary's day, the national faith was at a pretty low point. It had been 500 years since God had spoken by the prophets. The Lord who promised to them that he would do great things was nowhere to be found. This may resemble some of your lives this morning. How quickly we forget the promises and the benefits of Christ. How lowly we might find ourselves because we don't believe that God is anywhere to be found. But what we see here What we see in this hymn is that God is on the move. He is the one that is acting on his promises. He is the one doing great things for his people. He is the one who visits the lowly, the one who visits the outcast, the one who has brought his redeeming love for us in Christ because he has chosen us, not because we're more significant, not because we're the greatest people on the earth, but as Deuteronomy 7, 8 says, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping an oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you out of the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. God has chosen you to be blessed, to be his servant because he is gracious and he has done everything in history that needs to be done for you to be saved from your sins. You might remember the story in 2018. There's a 12-member soccer team aged from 11 to 6, and their 25-year-old assistant coach entered a cave because they wanted to go on an adventure. Shortly after they entered the cave, it began to rain, and the cave flooded, and there was no way for them to escape. And so what happened is that they actually had to go deep farther into the cave to escape the torrential downpour, to escape the flood. And they found at the end of this cave this sand dune, and they stood on that sand dune for 17 days. They had no ability to contact the outside world. No contact was even made to them after a week. Seven days they went, and they didn't even know that people knew they were gone. Over 10,000 people were involved in the rescue. There were 100 divers, 100 government agencies, 900 police, 2,000 soldiers, 10 helicopters, and one diver actually died in an attempt to rescue them. They had no food, and they actually survived because what they did is they licked the walls to receive water. And you might ask yourself, that's a lot of risk. That's a lot that all these people had to do just to save 13 people. This seemed too hard. Why didn't they just give up and go on with their lives? 
because those 13 people mattered. And they were in trouble and that there was nothing that they could do to save themselves. This is what Christmas is all about. You matter. And if you're still in your sin, you're in trouble. And there's nothing that you can do about it. But this is the message of the gospel this Christmas, is that all things are possible in God. God is sovereign over his creation. And there's no one that he cannot draw out of the darkness of sin. And he has come for us. This is what he has done for us in Christ. He has done something for us that we cannot do for ourselves. And the way that Mary responds is the way that any good Israelite, any good Christian should respond. Because we know the way of the world. We know what type of world we live in. Yet are we willing to respond to God's great act of grace when he intrudes into history on the behalf of his people? Are we ready to respond with singing to the praise of his glorious grace which he has blessed us in the beloved? This is why we sing during Christmas. Our Savior has come and God is on the move. But listen to this. There's also a personal response in this. For what does Mary say? For my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. That's a personal pronoun. She has connected God's saving work to her personal life. And you will never be able to sing a song like this. You will never be able to sing the Christmas hymns that we sing if you do not connect God's saving work in Christ to your personal life. Christmas will never make sense. It won't seem like hope if this Savior isn't your Savior. The story of Christ doesn't make us, shouldn't make us feel morally superior to everybody. But it will never change you. It will never change you if you don't come to this Savior and say, help me, for I can do nothing on my own. As one pastor said, Mary knows she has a great need for a Savior. Mary also knows that she has a great Savior for her need. And if you connect those two things in your heart, the only reaction that you can have is to sing. May our soul magnify the Lord. May our reaction to this Jesus be, you are our only hope. And may the world see it. And may our Father see what truly dwells within us. Amen. Let us pray. Father, cause our soul to magnify you. When we're at the end of our rope, 
Lord, perform a supernatural act. Perform a miracle and change our hearts. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. We're doing something a little bit different during Advent season. And instead of doing the Apostles of the Nicene Creed, we're actually going to confess the Westminster Confession of Faith. We're going to work through chapter 8. If you'll please stand as we confess Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 8, section 1. Christ Presbyterian Church, what do you believe? God was pleased.